Well, today we are concluding the series. Seems like it's been going for a long time. Uh, concluding our series, which we've entitled Make It Count, based on the book of Philippians. And from the very beginning, we outlined that Philippians was written by Paul from prison. The overriding theme is joy, which we said is ironic, since Paul makes it very clear that in his imprisonment, he's facing hardship and possible death impending. Uh, you know, as he's writing this letter, he's making that known. But yet in the midst of it, just the overriding theme of joy just finds its way all the way through. We said that Paul's message as he writes his letter is simply this. If we are willing to adopt a make-it-count approach, uh, an attitude in our relationship with Jesus, we'll experience joy when life doesn't turn out as we planned. We said joy is not based on external circumstances or emotions, but joy is rooted in having confidence in our relationship with Jesus Christ, believing that God can take the most painful moments of our lives and bring something good out of each and every one of them. So today, we're, as we wrap it up, we're going to consider how a make-it-count approach to our faith results in a life of contentment. When I was growing up, we rarely drank fresh milk in our house. Uh, we always drank carnation evaporated milk. Whether it was in your tea or coffee, you dilute it in your cereal. Mom would cook with it. She'd bake with it. Uh, in fact, carnation milk was was a symbol of Newfoundland hospitality because when people came to visit, it always ended with a cup of tea, and a cup of tea is never just a cup of tea. There's a lot of food on the table, and the symbol of Newfoundland hospitality right in the center of the table is a can of carnation evaporated milk. It wasn't because we couldn't get fresh milk. It was because sort of culturally and historically, it just became a staple because Many rural Newfoundland communities were actually located on small islands along the coastline that were fishing communities, and prior to confederation and resettlement, people would have to buy in for the winter everything that they would need to carry them through. And so from a milk standpoint, carnation milk stocked in the pantry took you through the winter, and then you just continued. Now, as a kid sitting there someday staring at the can, I noticed a slogan that used to be on the can, but is no longer on the can, as far as I know. And it, it, the slogan is, and you can see it here, from contented cows. And I'm thinking as a kid, what's a contented cow? I don't understand that. And so, you know, it's interesting to note that the carnation milk, this is just free today. You, you get this for free. In 1907, launched a marketing campaign. And the idea behind the marketing campaign was this, that carnation was a superior quality milk because it came from happy or contented cows. And so for many years, that slogan was on each and every can of carnation milk. As we consider Paul's final words here to the Philippian church, Paul is telling the Philippian congregation 
that he is experiencing a superior quality of life because he has learned to be content despite his circumstances. Now, earlier in the service, Marlon uh, read the scripture for us, and if you want to follow along this morning, Philippians 4, 10 to 20. The first thing Paul talks about are seasons. This final section of Philippians is Paul's expression of gratitude for the gift that the Philippians have sent to him through and by means of the person Epaphroditus. The gift has caused him to rejoice in the Lord for it, he says, you know? It's interesting, you know, you give someone a gift and they say, oh, thank God for this gift. Well, excuse me, I'm the one who just handed it to you, right? He's rejoicing in the Lord because Paul knows that while the gift came from them, he understands and acknowledges that it's God working through them that has made this gift to him possible. The gift is a long time coming. It's been about 10 years since the last time he received financial support from, from them. In fact, 10 years ago, they were the only church that he was receiving financial support from, he says here. And so when he uses the words, your gift came at last, he's not exasperated. He's, he, it doesn't mean what took you so long. He's not being sarcastic or passive aggressive. He understands that the reason they didn't send support to him in the last 10 years is because they lacked an opportunity to do so. Now, if you look closely at the text, Paul is actually using horticultural language here to express his understanding of the situation. The word opportunity means season. Season. All plant life functions within the cycle of seasons. And the gardener has to wait patiently for the proper season to see certain plants bloom and produce. Within the horticultural world, there's a moment, a season, for these things to take place. And so the Philippian season, their opportunity to help him, Paul says, has now arrived, and they've responded to it positively. Paul says, you've renewed your concern for me. The word renewed literally means the idea to bloom again. He says, you've bloomed again. The season has come, and you have bloomed again. The idea of those perennials that look dead, like there's nothing there, all of a sudden bursting forth in life and blooming. And so he's saying, you've bloomed again. They supported him 10 years ago, and now 10 years later, it's bloomed again. The season has arrived. Paul has spent the time between blooms like a gardener. He's waiting on God to provide the bloom, and now God has provided it. And so Paul is able to experience contentment because he, he understands that life is a series of seasons. He gets that. He sees that. He understands that. Well, our lives are a series of seasons as well. Moments when maybe all seems dead and dry, and on the other hand, there are seasons that are filled with life and hope. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, there's a good chance 
that you have experienced spiritual high seasons in your spiritual journey. Seasons when it was really easy for you to obey. Seasons when you could trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances, when you chose to remain faithful and you focused on him, and there wasn't a doubt in your mind that God was leading you. you you've had those, those seasons. And then those times, you perhaps experienced the extraordinary hand of God on your life, providing for your needs, that you weren't in want, that you were protected from harm. Maybe you took steps of faith and, and you clearly saw the evidence of the steps of faith that you took. Times when you faced hardship and you stared it in the eye and you had confidence that God was greater than your situation and you refused to be intimidated. In these times, it seemed like maybe God answered your prayers. He showed himself to be powerful in your life. That God was worthy to be worshipped above all others because look at God working in my life. Times when we were unshakable in our faith, bold, that we could never imagine it could ever be anything different than it is at that time. These are great seasons as a believer. I mean, wouldn't you want to pitch your tent there? We wish every season could be like that. Every season. But the truth is, we can't always live in the season of bloom. It just doesn't work that way. There are moments in our lives when our legs just seem to get knocked out from under us, that we quickly go from this incredible spiritual high to this spiritual low. And when this happens, faith that seemed unshakable is, is shaken. Trust that could never grow weary gets tired and exhausted. God that once felt close to us now seems like he's so far away. Prayers that were once quickly answered now seem to fall on deaf ears. Circumstances of life bring change, bring loss, bring heart-wrenching pain, bring disappointment, and our spiritual confidence quickly melts into fear. We find ourselves physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. Sometimes in the low moments, we even withdraw. We stop praying because we just can't find the words anymore. Or maybe, well, God doesn't seem to be listening anyway. Sometimes we stop reading God's word because the words just bounce off of us. They don't get into our minds. They don't get into our hearts. We quit going to our small group or we stop going to service on Sunday because we just, we just don't want to be around people anymore. Maybe we're just so disillusioned with God right now that, well, I don't want to be around spiritual things. Maybe we stop serving and we start thinking inward. We stop hoping. We stop expecting. Oftentimes, it's the low seasons when we want to quit. The point is this. Our life is a series of seasons. Moments when all seems dead and dry and moments when we're filled with life and hope and we are able to experience contentment in our life when we come like Paul to a point that we can understand that life is about seasons. There is always going to be the highs, the lows, the ups, the downs, the changes. Secondly, secrets. This is a really anointed sermon. They all start with S. That's the sign. Secrets. Thank you for laughing. 
God has allowed Paul to go through some challenging seasons in his life, and these challenging seasons have had a positive impact on Paul because Paul has adopted a make-it-count rather than a take-it-away approach to his faith. Paul understood that the seasons of his life and ministry were in God's hands and that God was in control, that God was ordering everything in his life, that God was making things work together for good, that somehow in the midst of it, as confusing as it was, God would provide for him. Paul has learned some important lessons about God's providential care for him. Specifically, he says, I have learned to be content. Now, this word content means to experience peace within that's not based on your external circumstances or on your ability to bring it into being. If you understand the culture of Paul's time, there were many wandering teachers and philosophers in the ancient world that would go from place to place, town to town, village to village, selling their ideas that contentment was found within one's ability to tap into their inner strength. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Helping people discover the best version of themselves. That people could find contentment within themselves. Paul says, my strength and contentment is because of the one who dwells within me, Jesus Christ. He says, he is the one who gives me strength. Paul has learned this truth from experience. He had to go through hard times to learn it. Because experience often is what you get when you don't get what you want. Isn't that true? And Paul has had to have that experience. Paul knew what it meant to be a prisoner. He knew what it meant to be in chains. He knew what it meant to have little food to eat. He knew what it was like to have his comfort robbed. Yet he was content with whatever God provided. In fact... If he had not gone through the hard times, he would not have been able to learn to be content. Paul is able to be content when his resources are limited, when, when the giving stops blooming, when he's going without. And he also knew that what it was like to have plenty. He said, I've been on both sides. I've had feast and I've had famine. I get it. And that's most likely a reference back to the days when he was a Pharisee and high up in Judaism. He's experienced both seasons, and the result is, through it all, he said, I've learned the secret of contentment. Well, what is the secret of contentment? What is the secret that he's learned? Well, he tells us the secret of contentment is learning to trust God in every circumstance and every situation. That's the secret. Paul is able to experience contentment because he's learned how to trust God regardless of what's happening in his life, in the good and the bad. Folks, life is not just about the destination. I talked about that in the funeral yesterday. But it's, about, it's not just about where we end up. Life is more about the journey getting there and who we become along that journey of getting there. And there are some things that we need to learn, and the truth is, if we don't learn them, we'll most likely repeat them until we do. 
Sometimes people have 10 years experience. Sometimes they have one year experience 10 times over because they can't learn the lesson they need to learn. And so in hindsight, we've come to see and understand that we grow in our faith the most. We really get to know God the best. We are changed most in the low seasons of our lives than we are in the high seasons. Learning to find contentment regardless of our circumstances is not the same of not caring or or giving up just whatever. Apathy, that's not what it is. It's learning to trust God in every situation, believing that God is ultimately in control of our lives. So I believe that we need to ask ourselves some important questions. Have we really learned the secret of contentment? As followers of Jesus, have we learned the secret of contentment? Do we really trust God with every circumstance? Or are we prone to worry and fear and take things into our own hands? Have we discovered his strength when we no longer have strength? Or do we rely on our own strength only to discover how quickly our own strength can run out? How do we cope when we have little? How have we learned to do that? Our biggest struggle, I believe, is not about finding contentment when we appear to have little. And I believe that's primarily because in our culture, whatever little we have is actually a lot within the world's context. You know, most of our problems are actually first world problems that to most of the world would not be viewed as a problem at all. I believe in our culture, one of our biggest challenges is how do you find contentment when you have plenty? How do you find contentment when you have plenty? Because we live in an extravagant culture filled with discontented people. You know, we found the end of the rainbow, but we didn't find the pot of gold. We have everything, yet we have nothing. That's the voice we hear all around us all the time, a restlessness, a hunger, a desire, an accumulation, a trying only to find that these things don't really satisfy in our lives. Because the secret of contentment is learning to trust God in every situation and every circumstance. Whether we have much or whether we have little, whether things are good or things are bad, we can trust God. And so we're able to experience contentment when we learn to trust God in every circumstance. Supplies. Paul tells them, He says, I'm amply supplied. What I've received from you is full payment. It's the idea of overpaying, receiving beyond his needs. Paul said, you not only gave me what I needed, you just, you went well beyond that. Your your generosity to me was more than what I even needed. And then he references the Old Testament sacrificial system when proper sacrifices were brought before God in sincerity and in, 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 you know, in openness before God. It says that those sacrifices were fragrant and pleasing to God metaphorically. Paul says what you gave me was pleasing to God. The Philippian church has been obedient to God. They've given sacrificially and God's pleased with them with their act of sacrifice. 
In verse 17, Paul says, receiving the gift was a good thing. He says, I appreciate your gift. It was a great gift. It was a big gift. It was beyond what I would have imagined. It was an amazing gift. But he makes it clear, receiving the gift was not the most important priority. There's more to this story than than a giver and a gift and a recipient that needed the gift. There's a long-term relationship here with this group of people that's been going on for more than 10 years. They've been partners with him from the beginning. They're a part of the community of faith. They're doing this together. And he's more excited, quite frankly, with what is going to be accredited to their account because they gave to him than what he is personally receiving. And so now Paul leaves being a farmer and a gardener, and now he's an accountant. And he starts using financial terminology. He says, because of your generosity and your sacrificial giving, God is going to act for you. You are going to receive the credit in your account. He's telling them, listen, God keeps good records. You have given so sacrificially and generously, that's not lost on God. And so he sees that, and he's going to credit that to your account. Paul says, I can't repay you. I don't have the means to ever pay you back. I can't bless you financially. It's when your bro- like when your brother borrows money from you. You know you're never going to see it again. It's not coming back to you. But he says, God will provide for you what I can't do. And quite frankly, he's saying, I'm more excited about what God is going to do for you because you gave than I am by what I'm getting. He says, my God will meet all of your needs. The word meet means to fill to capacity. No need unmet. They gave financially, and they're going to be repaid in spiritual currency. They're going to know the blessing of God. It's important to note. He says, your needs will be met. Now, I don't know about at your house, but that word need has a different definition at my house than it actually should exist to me. It doesn't say God will supply all of your wants, but all of your needs. Those who trust in God with generosity can be certain that God's going to supply their needs. And so Paul is able to experience contentment because his focus is more on the blessing of God for those who are giving than it is on his own life and the gift that he's received. Folks, the truth is God has blessed our lives so much. There are so many days when I think about how good God has been to me and my family that I, I, I'm just so overwhelmed. God is so good. You can say amen to that. I could shout and get you to say amen, but I'd rather you say amen about something like that. Just putting that out there. Everything we have is a blessing from God. And God has said to us, I'm blessing your life, but you're a conduit of my blessing. You're, you're the life that I'm going to flow through and use to advance my work and to touch people's lives and to be used to help others and to accomplish my purpose. That's why Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. 
It's hard to get our heads around that sometimes. And so the more we have, the more we're expected to give. And that's the basis of biblical giving. That's the basis of tithing and giving and generosity. God has never tied it to an amount. How much am I supposed to give? He tied it to a percentage because then those who have little are only expected to give a little and those who have a lot are expected to give a lot. God wants us to learn to trust him. How to give and live sacrificial lives. How to not become attached to things. I don't know about you, but that's a struggle sometimes, isn't it? To not become attached. We say that things don't mean anything until your daughter scratches your car, theoretically. Right? Things don't matter till the scratch shows up. Things don't matter until they're threatened. And we realize how attached we can become to things. Now, what helps us is that is just getting old and realizing that things we thought were important aren't really important at all. Sadly, it takes to the fact that you can't tie your own shoes anymore before you figure that out, but it, it happens. God wants us to learn how to trust him, how to give sacrificially, how not to become attached to things. And the result is, if we're able to center our lives on him, to align ourselves to him, our lives are going to be changed and our needs are going to be met and the kingdom of God is going to be advanced in the process and all of those things are the things that really matter. When we live this way, our lives and our actions and our generosity, God looks at us and says, I like the smell of that. I like the smell of that. Sometimes you don't like the smell of certain things. So I'm majorly against candles. I, I just am. I'm just, I don't think, I think God's against them. I'm against them. But everybody in our office likes candles. Mark brought the disease in and then they all caught it. And I walk in the office. I'm coming out of a meeting. I'm walking in the office. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what is that smell? It's disgusting. Oh, that's my pretty candle. Subjective of what is pleasing. <laughs> he buys the candles to overpower their smell. <laughs> I'm leaving that right where it is. The point is this. The smell that rises from our lives metaphorically to God is one that God goes, oh, that smells good. I really like what I'm seeing. I like what I'm hearing. I like what I'm observing. I like what's, what's happening here. Because not only are people blessed, but God is worshipped when we put others first. And then we, in turn, are blessed. It just keeps going, and it's good. And folks, God keeps good records. When we live in obedience to him, he doesn't forget us. He takes care of us. What I find amazing is that so often in Scripture, we are, we are warned to never put God to the test, to never test God, to never, to, to never do that. Yet there's one exception in, in Malachi where it challenges us that we are to test God. We're given permission and actually we're invited to do it. It says, test him and see. Test them and see that if you actually adopt this idea that your life can be a generous conduit to be used for the kingdom of God, that God will not keep his promises and take care of you. 
We don't give to get back a blessing. I know sometimes we do that. Church on some Sunday, pastor's preaching, we get all excited, we write a check, $6, put it in the account. We're all thrilled. $6 more than we've given in 10 months. This is theoretically. This is another church I know. And uh, all of a sudden, three weeks later, you keep checking the mail for that monopoly money that's going to show up of like $12 because you took the step of faith. We don't give to get back. We give because we care more about others and the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus than we do ourselves. That's why. A baker in a small town made it his habit to buy his butter from his next door neighbor who was a farmer. One day he became suspicious that the pound of butter was no longer a pound. It's kind of like eating a Big Mac, right? I swear they're not as big as they used to be. Just putting that out there. He came suspicious and he thought, you know what, that pound of butter, I don't think that's a pound anymore. Not the same weight as it was in the beginning. And this made him angry and he reported the farmer and, and had him charged. And as the farmer stood before the judge, he judge said, I presume you have the weights. No, sir, replied the farmer. When the baker started buying his butter from me, I thought I should start buying his bread from him. And it's this one-pound loaf that is the weight that I use for the butter I sell him. So if the weight of the butter is off, he only has himself to blame. Sadly, when we live without generosity towards others and God, it's just ourselves we're robbing. But we will experience contentment when we're able to focus more on the greater kingdom impact of our generosity than how generosity personally affects us. I'm going to invite our worship team to make their way back. A make it count approach to faith results in a life of contentment. Our lives are a series of seasons, moments when all seems dead and dry and seasons that are filled with life and hope. And we experience contentment when we understand this. Within these seasons, the secret, Paul says, is learning to trust God in every situation and in every circumstance. And if we do, we are able to experience contentment and then when we are able to focus more on the greater kingdom impact of our generosity and our own selves, then that just seals it for us. If we're willing to adapt and adopt a make it count attitude in our relationship with Jesus, we'll experience joy when life doesn't turn out as we planned. Jesus, as we stand before you this morning, we confess that as much as we proclaim, desire, your love, that sometimes your love is the most misunderstood aspect of our relationship with you. You and your mercy and grace place no limits. We, in our finite minds and sinfulness, put boundaries, limitations around it to the point sometimes of even deciding what we ourselves are worthy of and not worthy of Lord I pray that as we stand before you this morning 
that the purity and truth of your love will so transform our lives that we will understand that your love has no limits. Your love has no limits. That we do not have the right, even within ourselves, to limit what has no limits. You love us. You love us despite our failures. You love us despite our brokenness. You love us despite our fears. You love us despite our doubts. You love us despite our sin. And I pray this morning that somehow we would allow the love of God to wash over us in such a way that will not only change how we allow ourselves to be loved by you, but how we then in turn will love others. Father, we sung a few moments ago that you're not done with us yet. And I believe that with all of my heart. You're not done with us. You're still working in us. You're still working on us. You're still working through us. There are still things that we will see and experience and accomplish for the kingdom of God that we never thought were possible. We're going to become people we never thought would be possible. We're going to touch people we never thought possible as your love flows through us because you're not done with us yet. Lord, for those who are in this room that the season they're in is that winter of, of cold and death and, and just brown and blah. God, I pray that spiritually spring would come alive in their lives. That hope would burst forth. That the reality of who you are, your life would become alive in each of us. And Lord, whatever season we're in, will you teach us more of how to trust you and know you and live for you and give ourselves to you in whatever season that is. Because we know that it's not only better to give our resources than it is to receive resources, it's also better to give our lives. Because you said only when you give it away will you find it. And so that's our prayer for each of us here this morning. Father, as we leave this place today, may we leave with the confidence knowing that you're with us by your Spirit. You are leading us, you are guiding us, you are dwelling in us, and you are using us. And Father, I pray that the hardships and challenges of life will never distract us and cause us to take our eyes off of you. Lord, when the waves pound, when the sea roars, when the rains are pouring down upon us, help us to keep our eyes on you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name today. Amen.